I want to introduce you today, if, and, and I'm cagey about this in a little bit, I want to introduce you to Mean Jesus. Well, at least that's on the surface of it, what it feels like. I was talking to a friend this week, and, and he said to me, why does Jesus seem so mean sometimes? Why is he so mean? I think if, as we read this text and we listen to how he just, I mean, brushes off his mom and his family, it seems, oh, I mean, culturally, we're not even as family-driven as this culture is that, that we're reading about. It's removed from us in space and time by thousands of years, but family and genealogy and everything are vital components of identity for the ancient people, especially the Jews. They had genealogies stretching back a thousand years. They were meticulous about it. And they wanted to preserve their records so they knew what tribe they were from and all this identity and purpose. It was all there. So we're going to do three things this morning with this text, this story, this little vignette. And I want to explore its purpose in the story of Mark. There's a, I think there's a reason why this stuck out and this becomes a part of the record. Because it's, it is meant to be startling. It is meant to be, it is meant to upset you, I think. I think Jesus is very intentionally wanting to upset some of your comfort. But there's a second, this also, this, this text also, you have to see it in the whole scope of the story of God from, from the ancient people and the temple uh, all the way to now. To this, what I think is going to claim, this is a temple. You know, a church is not a building. It's this. It's us as the family of God. And third, I wanna, I'm hoping to explore then, if we get this new idea theologically, we can, uh, we can, uh, we can have a new identity. We can really see uh, a new identity and, and escape perhaps some of the dysfunctions of our families. How many of you feel doomed by the family you came from? Jewish and Irish. I got it coming and going. I got more. I'm a professional guilt merchant. Let's read this. Uh, In verse 20, as a little background, Christ is under a lot of... We're going to explore this in the story. Um, In verse 20, uh, 22... Uh, the crowds are crowding around, and it says that they were, his, his family was coming because they said he's gone loopy. Jesus has gone crazy. Our son is crazy. Our brother's crazy. We're come to get him. The text means he's like out of his mind in verse 20. And uh, the crowds are pressing in. The family's coming. And it's funny how it's all compressed in those few verses because then the religious leaders come and say, uh, he's, a, he's possessed by a demon. This kind of wraps up the conflict section. Next week we'll look at the sowing, the parable of the sower. Anyway, let's take a look here. And I'm going to read it and I'm going to ask God to bless us and, with spiritual wisdom. Mark 3, 31 through 35. And his mother and his brothers came. Standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your your brothers are outside uh, seeking you. And he answered them, who are my brother, who are my mother 
and my brothers. You know, grammatically, there's a pause there. I get the, you get the sense he just said it and let it sit. And, and looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. I'm going to ask for God to be present. Father, I, uh, I take this to be a spiritual work, which means I need, your, I need to be filled to do it, but we all need to be filled to hear it, to get it, to, to move towards it. Uh, show us why your son talks like this, Father. Uh, show us why it's important for us to hear it or what, it, what it's going to say to us today. Uh, Lord, I pray for the presence of the Spirit be over my mouth and over all of our hearts and minds in Christ. Amen. You have freedom right this moment. We're a family, which means you get to interrupt me because I'm not your father. I'm just your brother. Having said that, when I get a little excited, you might think, how the heck can I interrupt him? And you just need to raise your hand. That'll work. In the story, what's going on? What's going on? I've told you we've been covering this. We've been covering this in the story. But, ah, it's so strange. Christ is one of the things that we're wrestling with, that we're seeing. And perhaps we're just beginning to really see is the amazing stature of Jesus Christ. Now, you may not agree with my perceptions of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. I mean, you may be puzzled by it or confused by it or, or want to reject it. And that, to me, that's irrelevant at this moment. I just want you to understand the story. Because the story begins, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the, that's the opening salvo, the opening claim of the author. So I'm interested, and keenly interested, not in whether you believe what I'm about to say, but at least that you understand what the story says. Does that make sense? So, so that we can, because I think that's a, I mean, you may, or you can judge it on its own merits. And, and, uh, and I think... We'll get, we'll get to a little bit why, what you need the Holy Spirit for. But in the story, just in the story itself, Christ is this polarizing, amazing figure who is redefining reality. He, his presence redefines the situation. He is the ultimate redefinition of everything around him. He, as he walks in, the, the whole spiritual kingdom goes topsy-turvy. Uh, physical ailments are being healed. And so everything around this person, Jesus, the Son of God, this is what Mark is claiming, everything changes because he's present. He changes everything. He's the game changer all the time. I mean, the story, and that's what he's always doing. And, but of course, any, anybody who's a game changer, anybody who, who pushes change gets resistance. You push change, he gets pushed back. And you just exactly, the first thing that happens, Christ experiences pushback in the story. And a pushback that's very dramatic. And the pushback comes from the crowd, who, who's full of need, the religious, who are full of criticism, and the family, his own family, and he's caught. And this drama in the story of how he's caught, how he's being triangulated against, gotta, I, I feel some of, at least I can see it, sense, a sense of isolation, you know, a sense of, 
how demanding, how difficult this would have been, how hard this is. But one of the curious things is as Mark describes this conflict, he describes what Christ does. Christ forms the church family. And that's why this text makes sense. He's in the story and all the conflict that's happening around him and all the redefinition he's doing. His greatness is starting to come, is starting to come into full view. And his response to the, the, the pressures and, and what we're going to see next is um, all the stories, the parables are going to come up next. And I'm really enjoy- looking forward to us plunging deep into his thinking and, his, and what he wants to say. But this is, this is the progress. And this is his answer. Right out the gate, I, I think there's something here for, of joy. Right, right, right away. We all have experienced, some of us dramatically, I know you have, Nick, dramatically. Your family thinks you're crazy. Because, because of how you're following Jesus and sensing a call to ministry. Why, why, why is that so joyful? Why, why right out the gate does this make some sense? Because I, I, what I love and what I, what I hear, this is what I hear, this is the comfort I hear. If you're feeling lost, you know, and, and we all look, we, you can even say you have the world, the flesh, and the devil, who knows, you know, there's so many different ways. The reason I put devil under religious is because the first, where does the first demon occur in Mark? In the church. Religious people have a tremendous, it's one of Satan's favorite places to be, is amongst the religious. So, but anyway, but all this, you're going to flounder. And you're going to be looking for identity. And Jesus has been there too. Needs, people are pushing at you with needs. Family doesn't get you and where you're at and what you're experiencing. Religion seems like some harsh criticism against you at all times. And right in the midst of that, and this is my hope for a vision for who we are, Christ is bit, he makes a new, he makes a new family. So when you're kind of floundering and you're feeling that isolation, I want you to come to a story like this and understand that this is a good story. And that, that opposition you feel from the crowd or from the religious people or from your own family, there's a point to it. You know what the point to it is? To drive you to Christ's family. And to what Christ is making. And to what Christ experienced. <laughs> Makes sense. This is going to end, by the way, this text ends. Ends that first, this first part. We're going to get into parables next. But there's a greater, we're going to call it a whole Bible story. A whole Bible story. What's the Bible story? I can give you a picture, they're all shocked there. Uh, they have no idea where he's going with this. But if they were paying attention, they should have known something. If, they, if he's the son of God, they don't suspect it. They don't see it yet. They don't see how the forces of God's work in history are literally shaping and reshaping and coming to fruition. What am I talking about? 
Um, I'm trying to think of a good way to start. Well, start, we'll start with the tent, and then the temple. And then we saw in Ezekiel, we, we were in Ezekiel last week, uh, God's on wheels. He's in, a, he's in a chariot because his people were, were relocated to Babylon. Uh, I, I don't want to overwhelm you here, but there's something, there's something happening here. There's something fizzling in the text and kind of exploding and popping. And this is the idea. Why was God in a tent here? Does anybody remember why was it it's called a tabernacle? Why was God in a tent? Because his people lived in tents. And then as they kind of settled down and they became a people who had houses, what did God say? What did God do? I'm going to build a house. And then when they lost the temple, they lost the house, they were on the road for, they, they got relocated to Babylon for 70 years. And when, when, when God appears to the prophet Ezekiel, they're, God is on these amazing wheels with eyes. It's really trippy. If you're really bored right now, go read it. It's Ezekiel 1. And uh, why is God on wheels? Because his people are now on wheels. What's happening here? Christ dwelling with his people, creating his people, calling his people. In the text before this, he calls the disciples. Christ, by his very presence, here on earth is a fulfilling of the entire story of the Bible's unfolding reality of God saying, I'm going to live with people like Timothy. I'm going to live in Timothy, and in Timothy, he's with Brittany, and Timothy and Brittany has her with Nick, and Nick, and I'm going to live there. And so what's happening in this little story here, this remarkable vignette that must have stuck so deeply in, in Peter's mind. We, we, believe, I, we believe that Peter, Peter is the narrator here for Mark, who wrote this. That, that this, this dramatic is because this is what's happening. And Christ in the cross, you know, let's take a look at some of this. Uh, do you know the temple and the tent? And it had furniture? It's a big debate in my family about who's going to get the furniture. Because my, uh, my grandmother was an antique dealer. So we had some really, really nice furniture. So there's kind of this tension. I'm the oldest of six. Who's going to get the furniture? And uh, it's really funny when anybody ever comes to my house and they look at some of the things I have, anybody in my family, they automatically know. Do, where, how did you get that? And I'm like, Grandma gave it to me. I have these old trucks and stuff. These old, oh gosh, you know. And, I, and I'm accused that of having stolen them. And, and I didn't. I didn't. They were given to me. Uh, oh, there's also food. There's food in the temple. There's bread put on a table every day. I mean, and if, what else? Do you know how the how did the priests eat? Does anybody know how the priests ate? by the offerings and sacrifices of the people. Sacrifices are happening. But the sacrifices are really like, in a lot of ways, the sacrifices of the Old Testament on the altar are really nothing more than the butcher block for the pastor, the priest, and his family. But what, what was all that blood and sacrifice and food and furniture and temple? And it was all pointing towards what Christ would do as he dies. You know, it's funny, the sacrificial lamb of Christ, and here we are, we're going we're gonna to have a meal together, like a family. This is the family table. 
And so we, we continue to enact and we enact out. And what, I, what I'm going to claim here is if you know Christ, if you know Christ, if you know Christ, can you imagine some of you too? How precious is that Christ would call you mom? I'm like, that's really precious. And, and so, uh, but anyway, as you, as you know Christ, and, and as, you're, as you're united with him in his, as, it, as the passage from Romans talked about, united with him in his suffering, united with him in his glory, he, everything that this Bible story was trying to teach you was to put your faith in Christ and the sacrifice for sins and the welcoming in and the transforming work of the Spirit to give you a new a spirit of adoption, a new welcomeness, a new, a new family. And uh, this, the reason I think this is so, uh, why I would, why, why, why is this? Because San Francisco in 2016 is the continuation of the program of the mystical incarnating presence of Jesus Christ now. You and I together are holy. And we're holy something different than we are apart. Just by being, you can taste it. What? This is everything, guys. The mystical union and the mystical brokering of a salvation and a rescue that comes from the cross and a forgiveness that transcends. Oh, it's, it's wonderful. It's the story of love. It's a love story. You see, why is, this, why is this so vital? Because the church drifts into becoming a religious institution. How many of you are tired of a religious institution called the church? I mean... When, our, when this generation says it, it doesn't like religious, uh, organized religion, I think we should congratulate them on seeing what, why, wisely that that is not, that is not the, that's not this story. That's not what this story was meant to create. Okay, uh, or the crowd, uh, the church becomes, uh, there's not as much here, this is not a phenomenon, although I will say there are probably some works here in the city, I'm not picking on anybody, but, but were they, were they really there to, as a social club, the Christian social club. And uh, it, it meets a, a social need that people have to either find a mate or find some business connections. Or In the South, this is very, very powerful. All your primary business connections happen through the first press of whatever city you're going to go to. Not so here. Anyway, so nothing personal. But. Or family. Gosh, the church can be so caught up in being a family institution. We're all about family. And, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting to see kids here and, and have the opportunity to minister to children. But that, I, this is exactly, in some sense, this, this, this is right. We become aunts and uncles to uh, Isaac and Callan, right? But what's the temptation that happens? Well, no, it's all about family family, focus on the family. Sorry, that is not biblical. Only as it's a result of this mystical union do all these, or how about the church's social change? There are churches here that want to just do all social change. You know, a principle comes up here. What is the enemy of the best? Does anybody know what the enemy of the best is? What's the enemy of the best? The biggest enemy of the very best you can have in spiritual life or any part of life. Does anybody know? 
the good. All the good things the church can be religiously and confessionally or socially or for family or for social change, they are all enemies of the best, which is what? You and I, the mystical union of Christ. Imagine him here saying, look here, look, look around by faith in my work. These are my brothers. These are my sisters. We're claiming something, the best, which is the presence of Christ's love now. I want to talk about a theological vision that comes out of this text now. And it comes out of where it's where it is. And the, where it is. The reason I, you notice I, we, well, before confession, we, we went to Romans 8 and the spirit of adoption. And by him we cry out, Abba, Father. By him we cry out, Abba, Father. So Christ is sitting there and I, Right before this text comes blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Do you remember this? this uh, that's what's before this, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And Christ tips his hand. He says, people who, who accuse me reject the Holy Spirit. People who don't get me reject the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. People, and what, what spirit is it? It's the spirit of adoption. They don't get it. Two things could jump out right here. If you don't get this, it's because the Holy Spirit hasn't penetrated yet. Like oil into your consciousness. Like beyond your barriers. The Holy Spirit hasn't moved in a transformative way to bring you so you go, Christ, my brother, my, my God, my Lord, and my God, and my brother, and my Savior, and my rescue, and his people, and I'm, oh. So there's an ingredient missing here. About, about being adopted into the family, into the story of Mark and the story of the Bible and the love story of the family. And that, that the theological idea is you need the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit who makes real that you're a son and makes real that you're a daughter and makes it not just poignant, not just sentimental, but material and transformative. You're a new daughter. You're the new... D- and you cry out, Daddy! This is the Abba, right? Daddy! And... This is so beautiful. This is the cry of childlike faith. You know, calling God Abba, Father, is not the language of the great mystic who finally gets who God is. No, it's the cry of you when you skin your knee and you cry out for your mom or your dad. It's the cry of the heart for, it's, for the person who loves you will take care of you. So this theological reality of what Christ is saying, so it's not, in a sense, why Christ is so harsh is because he knows the enemy of the best. What's the best? The presence of the Holy Spirit in a new family in the kingdom of God. The enemy of the best is what? Your love for how good family can be. Yeah. Wow. That's why, he's, that's why he's so forceful. And in a sense, he's willing to hurt your feelings. Or more than willing. I guess hurt his mom's feelings. Because he's about a new presence of the Holy Spirit. So this last, last part here really is new identity as a son and a daughter. 
that we might know it and know it, hear him speaking it to us. The, the reason, there's a wonderful reason for this, though. I mean, I just need to be saved from the dysfunctions of my family. I was thinking about this. Uh, you know, we, there's an old joke. Why did, why did God give um, the Irish whiskey? You know why God gave us the Irish whiskey? Otherwise, we would have ruled the world. And that's been said around whiskey more than once in my family. Tell them more do. I can't stand it. Anyway, it's uh, Irish whiskey my mom likes. That's on my mom's side. My dad's side's Jewish. So I'm always convinced that something's going to go wrong, and I don't know why things are going well. I mean, that's just the way I am. <laughs> the other foot's going to fall. Something's going to, you know, it just doesn't, I got it. It's just, I, it's the most pessimistic worldview I can possibly describe, is being Irish and Jewish. Uh, we'll catch mom doing it. You know, mom, my mom's a really sweet woman. She knows God, and they came to Christ when I was a kid out of a weird world of drugs and, and Zen, Buddhism and everything. But we'll catch mom doing it. You know, like this last week, it was like, uh, my mom will see the most negative things in a nice way. You know, like, well, it's, it's just, I'm just glad you finally got a job or something like that. And, and mom, Kate goes, do you realize what you, my sister goes, do you realize what you just said, mom? She's like, what, what? She's like, you made it sound like we're, like I'm a loser. Like, you're trying to compliment me, but it's all backhanded. It's all like, wham, you know? And she's like, that's not, why does everybody pick on me? Why does everybody, uh, my mother, why does everybody pick on me? Everything's my fault. Everything's my fault. Go, go, why didn't you blame your father? And I'm like, and uh, it's, sorry. We just took a walk down dysfunction lane into my, into my family experience. But there's something really beautiful here. There's a lot of dysfunction Almost every family in the Bible is a complete wreck. We're talking about incest, murder. Four women are named in Christ's bloodline in the book of Matthew. One's a hooker. Do you know what Rahab means? It means wide. It's Hebrew for easy. What? What? Bathsheba. Bathsheba apparently didn't put up much of a fight, did she? And never audibly objects to anything. Uh, Ruth, who's not even a Jew, what is she doing there? What's the point of this? What's the point of the what's the point of the family story of Jesus? He's got skeletons in his closet. And if his identity was anything other than he is the son of God, the beloved son, he'd be ruined just like us, right? But that's not his identity. And that's not the identity he chooses to give us and he brings us into by the spirit and by his death and by his blood. Blood is thicker than water, yes. And his blood's thickest of all. His blood covering you and me. And so he calls you brother. He calls me brother. He calls us mother, sister. And he calls us family. And, 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 and he redefines everything when he's present. In it. And he redefines it because he's the son of God and new hope from, to rescue him and his bloodline. He has to rescue his own bloodline. You notice the promise to David we start out in the first poem? The promise to his bloodline. He had to rescue his own bloodline. His own family. 
And he was not defined by his family other than how he's defined by God, his father. You see why I'm excited about bringing us into this? Into family. Let's pray. Father, we need new identity. I, we take our identity, we take the last name of our father. Each generation in our culture does that. Other cultures do other things. And some of our cultures, uh, family's everything. You just never, ever turn away from family. You never betray or you never, whatever it is. And it doesn't matter how bad things are. Uh, we've heard, I've heard, I remember hearing the story in the end, you don't have anybody but your family who's going to stick around you. Um, that's not true. Not where your family's being created by the Holy Spirit, by faith, and by the blood of your Son. Father, I, I pray for the vision of our church. I, I do, I just put it before you. Make your family here. Give us a spirit of adoption. <laughs> Co-heirs and heirs with Christ. Guide us through the world, the flesh, and the devil. Or guide us through the crowds and religious traps and family squabbles and difficulties. And lead us into your kingdom. Make us a part, make our church here now a part of your Bible story of love. And uh, help us to Remove every enemy of the best, which is knowing you and being a part of your family in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. So, every family's got a meal. Every family, that's why we do this every week. It's, your, it's our first action as a family after the message, right? It's our first kind of family, the, di the dinner bell. I can still hear my mom yelling. My mom could yell. Boy, you could hear her a mile away. You think I'm kidding. I'm not kidding. You could I could hear her that far. You could hear. And you know, well, I, I was always ready for dinner, so. So I want you to hear a dinner bell ring rung. Dinner's on the table. It's the meal of the fam it's the family meal called communion. It's still food of the Old Testament. It's the sacrificial food now, but now we're looking back. Now we're looking back. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread with these men and these women, and we don't know if we, we think women were there. This doesn't mention them. And he said, This is my body, broken for you, take and eat. And in the same way, he also took a cup of wine. He said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. It's the cup of the covenant. Take and drink. Again, this whole Bible story is coming true here. This is a mystical, sweet communion. So I invite you to partake as if you're a member of the family of God. Conversely, let me... can't pretend to be family, can you? It just doesn't work. You're family or you're not. So, if you don't share my 
my belief, the convictions of the Christian faith, which are, which are going to be actually articulated in the, in the Apostles' Creed we're about to read together. If you don't assent to those and are not a part of the family somehow, then I would ask that you respect this meal and not partake. Not yet. I'm hoping that if you'd stand outside of God's family, you're looking at us going, I want to get in there. I want to know God the way, he, way Chris has described him today. I want to be a part of that. That's great. And I, I, we love, I love it when atheists or agnostics just, just observe. But I want, to, I, want to get, I want to get a little rough, though, with a certain person. And that is people who think they're good people. If you think you're a good man or a good woman, you're not, you're not worthy to be a part of the family of God. Only sinners and the broken who know the spirit of Christ and forgiveness of sins are, are welcome to this family meal. That's called a fence. It's a gate. It's a barrier. The righteous are not permitted to the table who have any righteousness outside of Christ. So, all right. We're going to enter into a moment of organized chaos. I just realized we don't have any grape juice. How many people are going to have grape juice today? Raise your hand. All right, Deepak. Anybody else going to have grape juice? Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to, I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to ask you what you believe. We'll recite this. As we're reciting, will you come forward and get the bread and the, 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 the gluten-free bread and the wine and uh, go back to your seat and we'll take it together. All right, what Christian brother or sister, tell me, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and of earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, new conscious Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried, and into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Dinner's on. Take and eat. Take and drink. Praise Him. <clears throat>